All right, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4 this morning. New England Patriots. Wow. I hear you got a good draft pick coming this year. Finally, Finally yeah. That's what happens when you lose so many games. <laughs> well, it's a joy to be here with you. I'm thankful. Enjoyed Dr. Benson, getting to know him, of course, appreciating his ministry over the years and spending time with him. I love your faculty. I've had the opportunity to see some of them, looking for more of them in the audience here today and look forward to getting some time with them and enjoyed close relationships with them over the years. It's been a joy as well to be able to speak with the other speakers. Uh, I've known many of them. I love Dr. Tillotson. You've already heard twice. Uh, we graduated from the same undergrad program, and uh, he reminds me of our former chancellor, Dr. Olala. When I hear Jim Tillotson speak, I hear Doc, Doc O, and so I love to hear him, and I've been blessed and convicted by his speaking. I, uh, I don't think Dr. Doran uh, has preached yet, but uh, he'll be speaking the next two days, and I had the privilege of learning expository preaching under Dr. Dorant. Okay, I don't know what that means for how old he is. Uh, and uh, I don't know that he would claim me either as a preacher. But it's a delight. He's one of my favorite preachers. Love to hear Dr. Dorant. But the closest relationship I have with any speaker is Dr. Morell that you've heard already once uh, so far. Uh, we were in each other's weddings. We went to Bible college together. Uh, we uh, graduated the same year at that Bible college. Uh, when you have Matt and I together in the same room, you've got the tall and the short of it. Um, we'll let you figure that out. Um, I enjoyed hearing Matt. <laughs> I enjoyed hearing Matt speak. And uh, the last, the last time I spoke alongside of Matt, I need to say this, um, I lost. So in our senior year uh, at the Bible college we were at, they had a preaching contest uh, back when they thought that was a good idea. And uh, there were four of us seniors, I believe, that spoke and uh, came, I think I came in second place to uh, Dr. Morell. So... Um, looking forward again to hearing him more. But probably my favorite part of being here is to be with you. Uh, I would really enjoy getting a, an opportunity to talk with you, many of you. I, I go by the den uh, just to see if I can meet some students. And I know it can be a little intimidating to say hi or to introduce yourself. But I would love to speak with you, to get to know you, to hear about what God's doing in your life, what he plans to do through you. That would be a huge source of encouragement to me to see how God is working in your life and even this week what he's doing. If you want to talk about ministry, I'd love to talk ministry. If you want to talk about seminary training, I'd love to talk about any of those things. I've been praying for Bob Jones all year. I've been praying for you as students. been praying for the faculty and staff. And I trust that God will continue to do the great things he's doing here. Well, it's been a blessing to consider with you how the fields of evangelism are white unto harvest. And to learn what the Bible says about our need 
to engage others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. No doubt we've experienced some good preaching so far this week, and I trust that that preaching has made an impact. Now, the preaching might hit us all in different ways. Perhaps there are some of you in the room who are feeling like I used to feel when I was in a Christian college and heard about evangelism. I was a good kid. I'd been raised in a Christian family. I trusted Christ as my Savior and Lord when I was six. But I had never led someone to Jesus before. Here I was in Bible college. I was 20. But hearing about evangelism in sermons filled me with feelings of failure and frustration. I wanted to be better, but I kept faltering and failing in this important task. Now, there are a whole host of evangelism programs that someone may have used to help me get better at it. I could have learned the way of the master. I could have perhaps engaged in evangelism explosion. I perhaps could have brought people to the living waters or learned to cast the net in a certain way. But God did something different in my life, and that's what I want to share with you this morning. Eventually, along the way, God used a passage of Scripture that continues to encourage, challenge, and convict me regarding speaking the gospel. For me, better than any program was Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 13. So if you're here today and you are like me, if you struggle with frustration and failure in evangelism, let's learn from one of the greatest missionary church planters of all time, the Apostle Paul. This morning, we're going to have a simple outline from this text. We'll answer two simple questions by looking at Paul's words. We'll first answer the question, what does faithful witness or evangelism look like? And then we'll answer the question, how is faithful evangelism possible? Got that two-point outline? You'll know we're about done when I get to point two. First one, what does faithful evangelism look like? Second one, how is that even possible? And before we look at that in God's text, let's pray together. Lord, please do a work. Do a work in my heart. Strengthen me in these ways. Do a heart in the, the lives of my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, whether, whether student, faculty, or administration. Do it through your word. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Spirit uses the word of God to change lives. So do that work again today. Strengthen us, renew us, encourage us. And, and Lord, we pray that you would get all the glory from it. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we're going to look at is what faithful witness or what faithfulness looks like. And I, I would say in verses 7 through 12, there are three characteristics of it. First, faithful evangelism includes human weakness. Look in your Bible at verse 7. 
says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Here Paul begins by reflecting on how God has used him and the other apostles to display the treasures of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word treasure in verse 7 speaks more specifically, if you look up into verse 6, to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God found in the face of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's treasure. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God found in the face of Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 3, Paul had just given us an Old Testament passage. He cited one where uh, he revealed his, God revealed his glory to Moses. Remember that Old Testament text. When God revealed his glory to Moses, it resulted in a glow on his face that frightened the Israelites. And although that glory was eventually fading and faded away, in chapter 4 he speaks here of the permanent and powerful display of the glory of God that was found in the person of Jesus Christ. I hope at a school like this you would agree with me and say, Jesus is the greatest manifestation of God and his glory that this world has ever seen. And Paul here calls that revelation a treasure. However, in God's plan, he chose this message, he chose to convey it through lowly human apostles. Think about all of the options that God may have had to portray the glories of the gospel of Christ. God God could have written the gospel across the solar system in bright lights. You think God could do that? God could have etched the words of John 3.16 on the moon. You think that would be powerful? That would be a testimony to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God could have used a permanent angelic chorus to continually sing the treasures of the gospel. Instead, however, God chose to display this treasure in common pottery. That's the metaphor of verse 7. In earthen vessels. Now, those terms could literally be used of clay pots. Common, inexpensive, and fragile. According to my study, though, I I think that if you combine the idea of earthen pots or earthen vessels with the imagery of light, that it's better to understand this as a metaphor for common earthenware lamps that would be used to shed light. And so the point of the analogy is the apostles were like weak, common clay lamps that held a glorious light. That's the imagery. And Paul has prepared us for this imagery throughout 1st and 2nd Corinthians. If you remember back in 1st Corinthians chapter 1, he he talked in 1st Corinthians chapter 1 of the, the sort of people that God delights to call and then use with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll read just a few verses. Perhaps you remember these. These are, this is kind of a life passage for me. 
a life passage for me. I take great comfort in this power and weakness text. First uh, Corinthians 1, 26, 6 says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yes, and things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. So that no flesh would glory in God's presence. You see, God delights in calling and using the foolish, the base, the despised, probably my favorite description, is the things that are not. Powerful description. It's, it's, it's like worse than we're, we're not the have-nots. We are the are-nots. I don't know if it's worse to not exist or to be treated like you don't exist. This is a picture of human weakness and frailty. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul, Paul will describe his own writings and his bodily presence. Who actually let his critics do that. You could write down the references, 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. I encourage you to go there sometime. He says in that passage, he says, his, later, his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence was weak. You see, Paul was definitely nothing to look at. As a matter of fact, an early description of the, of the apostle from church history is one of my favorite descriptions of person. This description said, Paul was a man small of stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. Paul was a short, hunched over unibrow with a hooked nose. If you're thinking like me, I'm thinking the penguin. The penguin. He wasn't much to look at. But he also wasn't something much to hear. He didn't want to hear him. They, they also continued, as critics said, his bodily presence is weak. His speech is contemptible. Some speakers are at least good to look at. Like, well, he's pleasant, I suppose. Can't really speak. Others aren't pleasant to look at, but they're pleasant to hear. And then you have some speakers that are neither good to look at or good to hear. That's what people were saying about the Apostle Paul. He was a frail, disfigured, broken down, weak apostle. In our text, I think he reinforces that idea by saying that God delights to use human weakness to display the treasures of the gospel in earthen vessels. Men and women, it's like God chose to display the glories of the hope diamond in the, in, in the setting of a paperclip by using the Apostle Paul and other humans like him. Other pursuits in life require some level of physical strength or conditioning or intellectual abilities or skills or giftedness. But in the Christian life, one of the things we learn in these texts is the greatest ministry is performed by the weaker vessels. The weakest vessels. 
those who are broken and base and cast down and lowly. So don't lose heart. God can use any willing servant. And he does so, as this text says, so that his power and his glory would be made known instead of ours. Isn't that good? So far, so good, right? You got human weakness? How many of you have human weakness? Okay, good. You qualify. That's the first characteristic needed to make an impact with the gospel like Paul's. But then, verses 8 and 9, Paul reveals that it also includes human suffering and affliction. Look in verse 8. He says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. In verse 8, Paul uses, verses 8 and 9, he uses four sets of participles. They come in groups of two. You may have seen that as we were reading. And he does this to communicate that he endured much suffering as an apostle of Christ. Paul had just gone through a near-death experience in Ephesus. He writes about this in chapter 1. And there were also many other times when he endured great suffering and affliction for the name of Christ. And so these four sets of participles are used by Paul to explain just how bad it had grown for him. And as you go through the four sets of participles, you keep going lower and lower. Things are getting worse and worse. It digresses. He starts out with the first set. He says, we're troubled on every side, but not distressed. This means Paul was afflicted, but he was not broken. I heard one preacher say it this way. Paul was put in a blender, but he was not completely pureed. Trouble everywhere, but not broken. Perplexed, but not in despair. The second set of participles is a play on words in Greek and it's not really easy to reproduce in English. If I were attempting, I might say something like this. Paul says, we're at a loss, but not absolutely lost. We're at a loss, but not absolutely lost. He continues with the third set to, to show that he was not abandoned. It says persecuted, but not forsaken. And I want to take a little bit more time with this one. Persecuted, but not forsaken. The word persecuted means to be chased or to be hunted. Paul knew in his Christian witness and ministry what it was like to be hunted down or to be chased by others for his faith in the gospel. At this point, I think if Paul were giving a missionary report, he might show slides from Thessalonica and Berea in his second missionary journey, Acts 17. Or perhaps even better from his first missionary journey from Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. I want to read just a few verses of his time in Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. In Acts 14, verse 19, Paul says, or Luke says, and, and there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he, would been, he had been dead. 
Verse 20, howbeit as the disciples stood around about him, he rose up and came in the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when, when they preached the gospel to that city and had taught many there, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. I, I want you to use your imagination for a moment here. And let's imagine that Paul the Apostle is, is coming back to your church. Your church is the church at Antioch. And he's going to give a missionary presentation, a report. Back when I was young, I remember missionaries giving these reports on something called a slide projector. Because this little thing with a wheel and had like these pictures in it, these cardboard things around it. And they would click and he'd, he'd, you know, chug through the next one, next one, next one. And you'd see slide after slide of what they do. Now it's what? PowerPoint, right? And you've seen this. You've seen a missionary give a report. They give a slide presentation. Here's a, a picture of them with, with these people that they're trying to reach. And this person. Then he asks prayer for this person. Well, Paul the Apostle kind of meanders to the front of the room here. The church at Antioch. And the question is, how are things going, Paul? We, we sent you away. How's it been? How was your first missionary journey? So Paul comes to the front and he shows the slides. He says, see in this one slide, see that, that uh, angry guy with the curly cues and the hat? See that guy? Now look at He clicks forward to the next location. Now see that guy in the back there? Still angry? Same guy. Same guy. Or he shows the slide at uh, Lystra. He says, see the guy with the stone? You know, he's getting ready to throw it. See the anger in his face? Now, let me go back one. The city before. See that guy in the corner? Same guy. Same guy. You see, Paul knew what it meant to be chased down and hunted for his promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And although this is true, he says persecuted, chased, he could add this, but not forsaken. Not forsaken. Now, how could Paul say that? How could Paul say that he was not forsaken? As a matter of fact, a little bit later in his life, he will use this word to say, Demas has forsaken me. Near the end of his life, in this, his second time in Roman imprisonment, he'll say, all have forsaken me. So how could Paul say that he wasn't forsaken? Do you know the answer to that question? I know some, some of you in a room like this, you're, you're bright enough to know. How could Paul say he wasn't forsaken? Well, he's not saying that people had never forsaken him. Who had never forsaken him? Christ. I'll take that answer. God. Christ. The Godhead. They had never Forsaken him. What a significant point. Second Corinthians 4, then Paul uses this participle to show that God had never forsaken him. And men and women, that is something that even Jesus himself could never say, couldn't say. You remember? You do a word study and the word forsaken, you trace it out through the New Testament. One of the first places you'll find it is when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he asks his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And as I wrestle through that, I, I think I understand. I think I know a little bit more now about why God forsook his son on the cross. It was so that we would never be forsaken. What a glorious reality for us then as children of God. Amid all of our trials, we can remember promises like this one. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And so as Paul is portraying a little bit of what faithful witness and evangelism looks like, like he's getting real with these participles. And he's saying, you know what, I've been chased, I've been hunted, but I've never been forsaken. He closes with the, the fourth set by, in verse 9 by saying he was struck down but not destroyed. This final set carries the idea of a battle. Here, Charles Hodge explains it this way. He says, Paul is like a soldier who's pressed hard in battle, surrounded, pursued, thrown down, though he was never finally killed. He's not the only author to pick up on the military metaphor here. The picture might be of two soldiers in a field. And believers like Paul are one of these soldiers. Their shield is broken down and two, they're bruised, they're struck down, but they're not beheaded yet. One person said it this way about Paul and the apostles, is Paul was replicating Golgotha wherever he went. So the second characteristic of what faithful witness looks like is it requires human suffering and affliction. At least the willingness to pass through these things. Now, how does that sound to you? You say, I got the human weakness part. How about the willingness to bear affliction for the sake of Jesus Christ? How about suffering? Unfortunately, when I speak on passages like this one among contemporary Christians, there's pause here, right? We swallow, we gulp, we hesitate. Few of us are actually willing to go as far as Paul did here, to pay the same price for the, for the advance of the gospel. Quite the contrary for us. We, we often look to the easy road in life. We avoid any hint of sacrifice or ridicule for the gospel's advance. I'd cite here a small portion of a book called Basics for Believers by D.A. Carson. I think Carson gives an analogy that probably better describes us. He says, I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy. But not so much that I get addicted. I, I don't want so much gospel that I learn to hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate foreign missionary service. Carson says, I want ecstasy, not repentance. I would love to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people. But, but I don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. And sadly, that testimony, I think, is true of many Christians. Yet Christianity itself, genuine Christianity, is not a call to ease and relaxation. It's not a call to rest. It's not a call to comfortable mar margin. 
No, Christianity and gospel witness will cost. It will cost you hardships and afflictions. So how are you doing now? You okay? Are we all right? Some of you look a little, and rightfully so, we got to think about this. What does faithful evangelism look like? It, it includes human affliction and suffering. And that's when Paul takes things a step further. And for sake of time, I need to go quickly through verses 10 through 12, which I think are a bit of a restatement and an expansion of what he said already. Verse 10, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body, for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. So that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death works in us, but life in you. Here we move quickly. We make the point simply that I think Paul's making. In these verses, Paul describes his own ministry as involved, or as one that involved dying like Jesus did. You see, suffering was the normal and essential characteristic of the Apostle Paul. It was not the exception for him. That was the call of God upon his life. In Paul's near-death experiences reinforced his belief that Christian ministry involved a death of sorts. In some cases, like Paul's, the Christian life may end in martyrdom. But every Christian, every Christian must die to self. Must die to self. It costs us a death too. Even this, however, had good results for the Apostle Paul. He says, although death is at work, work in us, he ends on a high, night, high note when he says, but life is at work in you. As I studied that, it really perplexed me, and I, I try to understand it and, and dig in to process it. What does he mean, life is at work in you? And I, the, the way I understand it is he's, he's saying the Corinthian believers' spiritual or their eternal life could be ascribed in some way to Paul's Christ-like display of the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, although I'm dying here, you live spiritually because I pointed you to Christ. And if you think about it, if you truly were dead to your own ambitions and desires, you wouldn't have any trouble Sharing the gospel around you. Sharing the gospel with other people. Yet many of us, unfortunately, participate in the great silence. Not the great commission. Well, that is what faithful evangelism looks like. You mentioned suffering, affliction, and death. And when we hear something like that today, I think even the most courageous of us might bail. I was with you in the human weakness part. Then you got to that affliction, suffering, and death stuff. And honestly, preacher, I just don't know. Other, others of us in the room might say this. Well, how though? How is it possible? How is it possible? And that's... 
where Paul goes in the first verse of the next paragraph. I only want to look at one verse with you. And this verse has meant so much to me over the years. The hidden little verse here, but an important one. Where we answer the second question, second point of the outline. How is faithful witness possible? Verse 13. Ready? How is faithful witness possible? Look there. We have, or we having, the same spirit of faith according as it is written. I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Now I want to show you something about the middle of that verse. In the middle of that verse, in most translations, there are, there are quotation marks around the phrase, I believed and therefore I spoke. Quotation mark front and That's because Paul is citing a text from the Old Testament scripture. In this passage, when Paul is contemplating uh, why he keeps on going or how it's been possible for him to continue to uh, share the gospel of Christ in all the cities that he's facing... In the midst of all the suffering and affliction, he thinks of one verse in Psalm 116. I believed and therefore I spoke. Now, the question we should ask if we see that that's there is why Psalm 116? What is it? I mean, I can imagine the Apostle Paul. Someone comes up to him in in Corinth or, or is there interacting with him where he's writing from this letter? They ask him, what's the secret? What's the key? I mean, how do you keep going? How do you not lose heart? And he goes down into the synagogue. He goes into the synagogue. He says, I'd like the psalm scroll. He gets the psalm scroll. You know, he starts rolling through it, trying to get to the middle. Psalm 116. He gets this verse. He goes, that's it right there. That's the key. That's that's the way. And he chooses his passage. Now, why the psalm? In this psalm, the psalmist faces many troubles. He faces the snare of death, the psalmist does. He faces what he calls the pain of the grave. He gives the vivid description that death had wrapped its cords around him. The grave's anguish had found him. He was distressed and in anguish. He was brought low. But, but then in the psalm, as you're reading, it says that God delivered him. God delivered him from his own near-death experience, perhaps like the Apostle Paul. And then in response to this great deliverance from God, the psalmist says, I believe, therefore I speak. See, for the psalmist, he was filled with new resolve because God had delivered him. And, And so he proclaimed his love for and commitment to the Lord. He opened his mouth and he spoke. Words of praise to the God. And that is, men and women, Paul's answer to his critics. He joins with the psalmist. He says, uh, there's there's the quote, I believe, therefore I spoke. And this is his response. We also believe. Therefore, we speak. By faith, Paul preached the gospel. And you know what normally happened when, when Paul preached the gospel? Either people were converted or he was thrown in prison and afflicted, distressed. And what normally happened then, would that would produce in him greater fear, which would in turn create greater boldness of speech. You see, I think Paul sees a, in Psalm 116, he sees a pattern, right? It's fourfold. The, The psalmist suffers and then he's delivered and then he has faith. 
because God delivered him, and then he speaks. And that's the inescapable and perpetual cycle for Paul. Suffering led to deliverance, which produced greater faith, which led to words. And at the heart of this cycle, then, is the connection between faith and words. You want an alliterated belief and boldness. I love this. It's profound, yet simple. This doesn't get paralyzed in evangelism by finding the right words. It pushes forth. Pushes forward from faith to words, from belief to boldness. I think the point here is similar to what Pastor Morell was saying yesterday afternoon in his sermon. You remember it? If you want a zeal for mission, then you must have a zeal for what? What fuels mission? Can you, can you remember? Worship. I love that. If you love worship and enjoy it, uh, the way I understood the sermon, uh, if you see worship and its true significance in your life, then you long for others to also experience that. You want everyone else to have what you have. You want your neighbors to have it. They're down the road, they don't know Jesus, but boy, worship is just so sweet with Christ. You have a relationship with him. You want people to have this. You want the nations to be able to taste and see it too. The Lord is good. I think that was a significant point in the sermon yesterday. Something that perhaps deserves more of our attention. Evangelism is a result of worship. Well, from Paul's point in this text, I think the key is similar, but the key is faith. If you are a failure in evangelism and you get frustrated with your failure, don't miss this. Don't miss what Paul says about how faithful evangelism is possible. Don't miss the vital connection between faith and evangelism. In other words, if you struggle with evangelism, it might be because you have weak faith. You say, that's, that's not me, I believe in Jesus. That's not my problem. Well, okay, but I ask you, how strong is your faith? How deep is it? How living? How vibrant? You see, faith is not an all or nothing thing in the Bible. It's not that you have it or you don't. But the Bible teaches faith is proportional. You can have great faith or you can have little faith. Or you can have faith somewhere in between. You remember the father? Love the story. Mark chapter 9. Father, he wanted his boy to be healed. Jesus comes. The disciples weren't able to do it. And Jesus proclaims to the father, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. The father responds, Lord, I believe. Help my what? Help my unbelief. This from the Father is both a conscious decision to trust God, I believe, but also an admission of failure. Help my unbelief, Lord. And this is perhaps a good thing for us to admit in our daily, regular prayers about evangelism. 
I've been praying this every day, multiple times a day since I've been here and through the last several weeks. Won't you join me in praying this? Perhaps as we learned yesterday, won't you pray, Lord, give me a delight or joy in you. And may that worship grow and then fuel mission. Or today in this passage, you, 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 you pray, Lord, give me more faith in you. Lord, and may this faith grow and fuel evangelism. Lord, help my unbelief. You see, I think in evangelism, we often focus on the evangelism part. You with me still? This point's important. We focus on the evangelism part. But I think focusing on the evangelism part is focusing on the discipline part, is focusing on the fruit. And what these texts are saying is one of the most effective fuels for evangelism. One of the, 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 the best things you can focus on is not the fruit, but the root. Where does effective evangelism come from? It comes from a heart that is full of worship for the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from someone who has great, deep faith. This is, this is nothing I can do. I can't produce this. That's why every day we need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You see, I just, I know that the text can feel complicated, but I just love simple, simple lessons, right? And the simple lesson, there's really one thing you need to focus on today. You need to focus on God giving you greater faith, deeper faith, more vibrant faith. And then be prepared for God to work. Be prepared for God to help you evangelize from the overflow. That's one of my favorite definitions of evangelism. Evangelism from the overflow. Where God works more delight in you. More joy in you. More joy in Jesus. So that when you're out, you just got to tell people. Or he works more faith in you more trust in you, and it kind of bubbles over so that you can't help but speak it. That's the key. May God give us deep, growing faith to fuel faithfully evangelism. And may he use us then to change the word, world for his glory. Let's pray together. In a moment of quiet reflection with no one looking around, may I ask you this question? Are you dry spiritually? Have you seen today that your problem, the source of your failure with evangelism, is either lethargic personal worship or weak faith? If you would admit that to God today in confession and repentance, would you raise your hand for me? I want to pray for you in just a moment. If that's you today, I think, you know, you were here 20, when you were 20, you were in a room like this and, and you said, preacher, it was because that you had failure in evangelism. I have to admit that too. 
as you talk and as Pastor Morell talked yesterday, I, as I think about these things, I think the, the failure with evangelism is a failure of the heart. I'm dry spiritually. I don't love the Lord the way I should. Or my faith isn't very vibrant. If that's you and you want to acknowledge that to the Lord in humble confession and repent of that, now please raise your hand. Thank you. We're praying for you. And will you pray for this today? I'm convinced that if you prayed every day, every day, throughout the day, multiple times, if you just prayed to the Lord, give me stronger faith, give me stronger faith, give me stronger faith, Lord, I want to open my mouth. I want to speak. I believe that in his goodness, he would do that for you. And so will you determine to get away this week? Would you pray for him? over and over again, that he would give you this faith. Will you then get your friends together and pray for this? May God do this work in your heart and may he raise up young people here who simply believe and then speak. Let's pray. Lord, please work within us a greater faith. Give us a greater love for you in worship. And I pray that as you do this stirring among the student body, among the faculty, among the administration, that you then would enable us to be like the Apostle Paul. So that someday down the road, someone comes and asks us, why, why do you just keep telling everyone about Jesus? We would come to 2 Corinthians 4 or Psalm 116 and say, there it is, that's the key. We believe, so we speak. We have faith, so we open up our mouths. We tell people about the great Lord we worship. Lord, do this work in the students' lives. Do it in the faculty's lives. Do it in my heart so that we can proclaim the glories of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.